Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. What is happening, everybody? Hopefully you're doing great on this fine day, maybe the Wednesday or Thursday or Friday. I don't know, whatever day you're listening to this. Thank you for caring about independent music, punk, hardcore, DIY, all those beautiful subcultures. Because the more and more I live a life that's like you know, quote-unquote normal in regards to, you know, I don't tour actively. You know, yes, I go to shows and participate in music festivals and that sort of stuff, but just interacting with, you know, normal people and their their day-to-day jobs and what have you, and meeting people that have an interest in subculture and have even, you know, participated heavily in it. Like, it just, it bonds you so immediately that I can't even, I don't know, it's just, it's it's special. That's all I'm trying to say. So today, speaking of special, I have a guest that, frankly, I was terrified to have a discussion with, and I know I shouldn't have been because, I mean, realistically, within like five minutes of the conversation, he was so charming and disarming that I was like, oh, I don't know why I wasn't intimidated by this, but Eugene Robinson. He's the vocalist for a band called Oxbow that has put out many, many records, put out stuff on Ipecac, put out stuff on Hydrahead. I saw them many, many moons ago with ISIS, probably like in 2004 or something like that. And ever since then, Eugene has definitely loomed large in regards to uh, just writing and being an entertainer. And the reason that he came on to this particular pod is the fact that he is releasing a book on Feral House, which is a great independent publisher. And uh, you can dive maybe, I don't know, a couple months back and you can hear one of the proprietors of Feral House. But his book that I urge you to pre-order, it's called A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight Into Murderer's Row. What a damn title. So it is a memoir. Eugene has led a incredibly <laughs> eventful life. Not only has he played in Oxbow, but he has just been steeped within the music scene. And um, yeah, we just, we get really nerdy in this conversation. Like he's literally on the back cover of the SSD power record, you know, the discography that they put out on Tang. And uh, it's just, 
really cool to talk to a dude that not only has lived a life, but has expressed himself in so many different ways. And so, and because of that, like, you know, he definitely doesn't suffer fools. And so I was kind of nervous that, you know, if I was uh, not coming correct in my questions that uh, he may just, you know, bat me aside and not in a mean way, just in a way that's like, man, you didn't do your work, but he didn't do that. He completely leaned in and it was awesome because of that. So you can email the show 100 words podcast at gmail.com. You can help the show out for free by going on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and or review. Those things definitely help. Same thing can be said about Spotify. It takes up 30 seconds of your day and I'm pointing at you. I know you listen to the show on a regular basis and you haven't done this and I would really appreciate it that at that appreciate that. You know what I'm saying? So that's all free ways you can help the show. You can also tell friends and family and anybody that you needs to know about the show because that's the best way for this thing to spread around and get out sharing on social media, et cetera, et cetera. Just giving you some thought starters as it were, you know, as, as people say in meetings where it's just like, I just want to give you a thought starter. And, um, yeah, then meetings go off and, you know, millions of different tangents. But anyways, I, uh, was able to go to New England Mellon Hardcore Festival. I know I spoke about it last week, but, um, I'm going to be posting some live episodes here in the next, you know, week or two. And they were all really, really good conversations. So pay attention to that. And, um, yeah, I was also in Vegas this past weekend and got to see a, a, the iHeartRadio Festival. Yeah. The iHeartRadio Festival. I was going to say music awards, but they didn't give out any awards. Um, it's just a really weird experience watching, you know, a hip hop artist like Lil Durk play. And then literally 15 minutes later, Cheryl Crow is playing. And it's just, it's just a wild ride because these radio shows are so eclectic. I did get to see Public Enemy, which was cool and awesome because I've never seen Public Enemy. And they, you know, to get a stadium full of people bobbing their head along to 911 is a joke. Like that just definitely warms my, you know, anti establishment heart. But then seeing like, you know, Fallout Boy and Foo Fighters. And it's just like you see these bands operating on such like a huge grand level that it's like, damn, this is really cool. And I mean, Foo Fighters, like, I don't need to tell you. They're really good. And watching them live was like, oh, yeah, Everlong, like that, that's a really good song. And so just these things that are like incredibly obvious, but sometimes you need it to be, you know, pushed in your face in order to, for you to realize that. So anyways. Music's great, right, guys? But let's talk to Eugene Robinson. And like I said, go pre-order his book. You can go directly to feralhouse.com and you can find it very easily there. And the name of the memoir is called A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight Into Murderer's Row. I've pre-ordered it. I cannot wait to read it because uh, his books are awesome and he knows how to express himself and he frankly doesn't pull any punches. And I know that's like a total cliche. Oh, this person doesn't pull any punches, but like he, I mean, man, he just, he lets it all hang out, so to speak. So anyways, here is the discussion with Eugene. I became aware of you with your affiliation with uh, Hydrahead. And then subsequently I saw you, on tour with ISIS in 2004 at the Glass House in Pomona, California. Oh. And yeah, I know. I'm old, obviously. I mean, I know you're older, but I'm old as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the thing, and at that time, like I you know, came from the punk and hardcore scene, as I know you did as well. Mm. And 
it, watching a band like what you guys were doing, it was extremely difficult for me. And I know you take pride in this where you can categorize what it is that you do. And I realize that's the point. But, you know, considering the band's large output and longevity, do you personally think that's why you collectively have, you know, stuck around and not have to worry about anything that exists within the music industry as far as like, oh, yeah, we got to be, you know, the hot thing in the moment or whatever? Well, yeah, I mean, it it really helps to be ignored. Um, and, and initially, I told myself, you know, you, you have this idea that there's a, there's a, you know, there's a deadline on some of this stuff, mostly kind of perpetuated by by mass media and then these crap, crappy commercials they do with a bunch of old losers sitting around going, hey, man, we're going to get the band back together. And so you start to think like, hey, you know, maybe there is a, uh, a life cycle to this and I should I should opt out. But the only people who should opt out are the people who have exhausted options. Right. So or like uh, Rollins once said, he goes, you know, music has you. You don't have music. If you feel like you are trying to have music and it's not working for you, you should, of course, find something else to do with your time that uh, pleases you more. But yeah, I mean, the old blues guys played until they died. Of course, they died at forty. It's it's a right. it's a it's a different story. But um, I mean, I'm looking at music as art, and if I could just as easily paint a painting, uh, uh, which I I sometimes do at the age I am, well, why wouldn't why doesn't it make sense for me to continue? I mean, our music is genre free in any case. I I, I read the reviews like anybody else and see that they kind of uh, batch it with, uh, you know, post-punk uh, or noise rock or, but these, these are not useful designators for anybody really in a band. I mean, it's useful for people in media because they know what section to put the review in. It's useful for people who have record stores, a few of them that are left um, and radio, but, um, but in terms of what you listen to and how you listen these days, when most of us listening, to you know what we listen to being determined by an algorithm that doesn't really give a shit whether it's this or that maybe um i don't i don't uh, i don't feel any and i don't feel any compulsion to be anything other than me you know which is really kind of nice and i know the difference because you know whipping boy started out as a hardcore band because my aspiration at that point was to be in a hardcore band because i loved the music and that's all i really wanted to do um you know, in the same way that like at one point I jumped up and decided I want to learn how to tango, you know, I didn't invent, I didn't invent the tango. It was, it's a piece of a a genre activity that I really enjoyed, you know, decided I wanted to do it. So I did it. But at a certain point you start to think, well, I'd like to, I remember having this discussion with Biafra and which I put it in the memoir where I said, you know, I'm, I was trying to give voice to the fact that it was not artistically satisfying to me to write music to genre versus the music that was in my head. And he was like, well, all of us are trying to do that. And I said, well, then a lot of us are failing. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. so, so, um, you know, I, I, I'm glad that Oxbow, I mean, you know, from playing with Peter Bratzman to playing with King Diamond, I don't know of any other bands that could actually do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty proud that we've been, you know, the, the latitude that we've, <laughs> that we've garnered for ourselves is coming quite useful. Um, cause both of those are shows I might've gone to, even if we weren't playing. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to your point too, just the, you know, you as a person, like the pursuit of all of the things that you do artistically, creatively, you know, prof- professionally, whatever, like 
they're all in service of one another, like what you're saying, just the continued pursuit of being like, well, yeah, like this pleases me. So I am going to do this regardless right. of, like you said, people paying attention to it or not. Like this right. is just what I need to do. Well, this is, and this is something Anton LaVey once said to me when I interviewed him uh, for the first time, which uh, is resonated with me over the years. And it's like, uh, uh, though it should be noted that I, I am in fact not a Satanist, but he said that, uh, he said, popularity has killed more people than anything. And I start to think, yeah, you know, I mean, the reasons why we do things or don't do things, like, why would I not do this or that? Well, I don't want to be embarrassed. Or I remember Gloria Steinem said, you know, for most men, the biggest fear or concern is being embarrassed. You know, for most women, the biggest concern is being killed by those men. So uh, in that instance, I think the fact that I was raised with uh, <laughs> a lot of women has changed my orientation where I don't really, I'm not really worried about being embarrassed, but I, I, I do spend a lot of time worrying about being murdered. So, Right. <laughs> right. Which is, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, like that's really the sort of base need that most of us kind of walk through life with like, well, let's just not get murdered today. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, <laughs> you would think so. But based on how some people act, I don't know if that is the case, really, you know. No, that's that's true. There there are definitely people that, uh, you know, are uh, deserve the comeuppance. Which, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> or like o- Octave Mirbeau said, there's some backs that cry out for the knife, you know. So. Yeah, <laughs> very true, very true. Um, I'll, I'll dig it, pull into a little bit more of those threads a little bit later. But, um, you know, just you as a person, I know you were, you know, a lot of the biographical information of you being born in New York. and clearly raised during the time when obviously New York, how it is at this juncture does not look anything like the New York you were raised in. Mm. Um, Was it one of those things where you felt like you could interact with the city as you were kind of growing up and, you know, having some autonomy of your own, were you able to kind of just basically exist like a, you know, wild and free child being like, all right, I'm going to go anywhere and do anything I need to. As soon as I started, as soon as I started to figure out public transportation, right. Um, and I, that must've been, I must've been, uh, the last time I remember an adult accompanying me to school, I was nine. Uh, by the time I was 10, um, I think I was on the school bus. And then by the time that I was 11, I was taking a bus, you know, a city, a city bus. And, uh, that certainly put me, I mean, shit that I would never ever let my kids do now <laughs> regardless right. of the fact that they didn't grow up in 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 new york um it just seems crazy to give an 11 year old a token and go good luck <laughs> you know? enjoy yeah hope you don't die today or get waylaid so um but i i i didn't really have a full-blown sense of the possibility of new york or new york as this kind of living breathing organism probably until I was about 13 and then got started taking the subway and then realized for very little money, I could go very far and do, and do things that weren't necessarily uh, in the neighborhood or on the book for what my parents had planned for me. Right. Exactly. And then, you of course, start- of course, at the age, that was also the age at which I was least able to protect myself. So it created a a really unpleasant discontinuity. <laughs> right. Oh, right. Yeah. You're like, Oh, I'm running into all these places that obviously I shouldn't be, or this person has a problem with me. And so now I need to think of backup, whatever that may mean. <laughs> well, I had started carrying, I, 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 at the age of 13, I think I, that was the point at which I said, I will never be without a weapon. And sure. as I sit here now, you know, 220 pounds, 
a jujitsu Brazilian jujitsu black belt. I, I wearing nothing but uh, 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 no shirt, no pants, uh, <laughs> shorts. I do have a weapon on me. <laughs> I mean, and I'm in the privacy of my home, but you know, like, uh, you know, bad things happen to you. And there's usually, there's a point of resolution that you get to where you think that's never going to happen again. So, uh, I think preparation is the key. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I know you've made it clear. I mean, in other places you've spoken about, like, you know, your parents were divorced and, uh, it, it was like you, your mom and your, your stepfather is kind of the family unit. Do you have any siblings? Um, I do. I do. I have, um, I have, um, I have, um, four sisters. Um, I, I have four sisters Two When my mother got, when my mother got, uh, remarried and then two from my father when he, he got remarried. Okay. Got it. And you, um, I presume, like, where do you stack up in the uh, age brackets? The like, birth you, order. I, yeah. I, I am the oldest. So, oh yeah, um, the first one to see. Yeah, I was the first. So my mother and father had me, um, and then my mother and her second husband, my stepfather, waited about ten years before they had uh, some more kids. And my father, weirdly enough, was on the same sort of schedule. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is, yeah, it's odd when you like can look back and be like, oh, wow, that's kind of weird how that all transpired. Well, not really. I mean, if you know anything about divorced parents, it was like clearly like, you know, my I think probably my father's breakdown was like, oh, okay, that's your move, huh? <laughs> so... <laughs> Totally. Oh, if you could do that, I could do that too. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. It just, it was too close. It was just too close. It was, it seemed like a weird kind of mimicry to me, but yeah. Um, the, you know, I know you've articulated your exposure to music. A lot of the early touch points of like, you know, kiss. And I, I love the Eddie and the hot rod <laughs> mention that I've yep. seen you throw it around and that, you know, introduce you to more of the subculture and different layers that you kind of dive down into. Um, because of, you know, I mean, you existing kind of in the, you know, ground zero of obviously like punk and hardcore as that stuff started to uh, pop off in your city. What attracted you to, I guess, that subculture and the, you know, stuff that was clearly nowhere near the radio or anything that was mainstream at all? Yeah, I think the, the emotional bandwidth, I think, had started to, um, uh, you know, had started to, uh, I mean, it's hard now when you think about, um what they call black music to, to imagine that there was a point at which it didn't really have an edge, you know? Sure. I mean, James Brown always had an edge, you know, and there were certain, certain types of music that, you know, I mean, you said Teddy Pendergrass, there was a certain edge to it, you know, where you, know, you got, you got, you got what out what I need. But, you right. know, at the age of 13, when the hormones start kicking and I was looking for, yeah, I was like, even at that point, I think I was an edge dweller and I think I wanted something that just like what people said, oh, you can't, that you can't listen to, you shouldn't. I mean, that's, that's, that's been an earmark. I remember right after I got to San Francisco, a, a, a concert promoter from Baltimore had moved to San Francisco and she and I were walking along the street. And I go, what the fuck is his house here? What is it? She goes, don't stop, don't stop walking. Don't, don't stop, stop. Keep walking. I go, what do you, whoa, 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 wait, this, why is it all black? She goes, oh, this is, this is where Anton LaVey lives. You, we got, you know, this is bad things will happen to you. I go, get the fuck out. Of course. So I tracked him, I tracked him down and interviewed him and, you right. know, it became a known associate, you know, after he hadn't done interviews with anybody for about 20 years, somehow, you know, it was me who opened the door to that. So, 
I think that's what the whole, I mean, it's funny to think about Kiss as, as being, as being, (laughs) as being, you know, threatening or edgy in any way at all. But you got to remember in 1975, it most certainly was. And they were from, and they were from Brooklyn. So. (laughs) Right. Totally. I mean, that was blowing, blowing people's hairs back, hair back. And then just the idea, you know, kids in Satan service. It's like, oh yeah, like this is the whole thing. Yeah. The, you're, you know, because you have traveled a lot in the, you know, for lack of a better term, like literary and or media community. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, you've expressed yourself via writing for many years, whether it's Mm -hmm. magazines or internet and what have you. Did you, you know, start writing like as you were like in high school and everything like that? Or was that something you just started to express yourself, you know, as as soon as I, as soon as I could, as soon as I could, I, I'm, I'm, you know, planning on a move next year. So I'm kind of collecting my papers and trying to organize stuff. And I found my first query letter to a magazine and I must've been about 10 and it was to Esquire magazine and they rejected me, but it was a very personal letter and they, somebody actually signed it. So I was like, cool. <laughs> That's cool. And at 15, a friend of mine had written a book and, uh, you know, we were going to, we went, went by penguin and they said, come on up, we'll talk to us about the book. And, <laughs> and of course I was trying to indicate that he shouldn't talk to them about the book because what he had done was written a book called debt to Madame Lopez, which was a porno novel at, at, at such a time when people actually wrote porno novels, but we were, we were 14 then 15, <laughs> you know? Amazing. So I always had aspirations to kind of, and I mean, it was the first thing I got paid to do. Right. As a, I think, I mean, I think I worked at the New York city jazz museum when I was 14, maybe that summer. Um, but by the time I got to high school, I was writing for student publications and sometimes getting paid for it. So, um, yeah, that was the first, And but I mean, I, before that, even I was like a theater kid, I think, yeah, I mean, you know, plays in school and musical theater and being on stage seemed to be sensible, but I didn't, I didn't believe that there was money attached to it. And it certainly didn't give me the satisfaction that writing did. Right. Yeah. No, you d- you don't say you were attracted to theater, Eugene. That's very, uh, it's very odd. <laughs> <laughs> I, can't, um, I can't see you as a performer, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, no, 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 no. But I mean, it's a thing because people like yeah. people I went to high school with were like, when the fuck did this happen with you on stage? I said, well, before I got here, I was on stage. And after I left here, I was on stage. I didn't do this stuff at, in high school because I didn't like the theater people, you know? Um, and in, in fact, I stopped doing it at Stanford because I didn't like the theater people. Um, and mm. one of them was, you know, Andre Brower, who's on you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine or, you know, had to be on a yeah, TV show. On the side. And he really loved it. It really, it really did a lot of things to him, but I just never believed it. I never believed the people in it. And I never, be- I never believed it. I, 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 it didn't feel like there was any there there to me. And so it seemed like being really good at hopping on one foot and so it, you may be in a situation in life where suddenly what's needed is somebody who can hop on one foot. You're like, ah, oh, fuck, the stars have lined up. I'm that guy who can hop on one foot. But in general, I saw it as being useful for other things, but not a thing in and of itself. And, I, you know, I've done movies now and TV at this point, and it never managed to satisfy me in the same way that, that writing or, or music has. So. We have our friends at rockabilly.com, and you know what they're here for. They're here to give you a discount. By using this promo code 100 words or less, gets you 10% off of their entire merchandise offerings. I don't care if you're into the Misfits or Metallica or Slayer or ACDC, whatever it is that you are into. I know I just named a bunch of metal bands, but like they got classic rock, they got R&B, they got hip hop, they got it all. 
and they ship it from the Midwest here in the United States. Gets you a lickety split. It's all officially licensed stuff. And uh, last time I checked, they got like, you know, 500,000 plus items. So like we're heading into the fall, right? You should probably get yourself a new sweater, maybe a new hoodie. How about a, how about a beanie? Something to keep you warm over these, you know, winter nights and stuff like that. But Rockabilia, I just love what they do. And, you know, hardcore kids work there. It ticks off all the boxes of the things that I like to support. And in turn, Rockabilia wants to know that you are supporting the show by getting a discount. It just it works so seamlessly. So go to rockabilia.com, use the promo code 100 words or less. That's the number 100 words or less, 10% off your entire order. Let's them know that you heard about it on the show and you continue to buy it. And basically, it's like me giving you free clothes. All right. That's essentially what it is. So please check it out and enjoy shopping. It seems like you enjoyed school, for lack of a better term. You continued to pursue it. Um, or was I it? I hated it. Okay. You hate it. All right. <laughs> I hated it. With okay. the well, but keep in mind, I loved what I was learning. Okay. I hated the people I was learning with. I really didn't like the Stanford student body. It, and people have, you know, I, I mean, anybody who, who's in earshot uh, knows my longstanding gripe. And in fact, it continues to this day in a weird way because I live like three miles from the campus still. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'll give you an example of my continued gripe. Like they covered the fight book. They have a whole section for Stanford authors. They covered the fight book, but they couldn't just cover the fight book. And I think the the the, the last sentence in the review was like, if this is your, if you're one of those people who find this stuff entertaining, it's like you know they have this ID fixé about themselves as being this upright, upstanding, and somehow I'm a perpetual outsider to this. And it's like you fucking pieces of shit. You've had three presidents in a row of the university who have been drummed out because of weird, you know, <laughs> weird integrity issues, financial slash integrity issues. Don't give me this stuff. It's like America writ rich small i just ah i hated it i hated it but you know by my third year or fourth year i really started to recognize some value out of the education that i was getting and i started to find professors that also seemed to see talent which was why in a long slow screw um i think two of the people who i thank uh were actually simone di piero was a professor i had and bill rivers who has passed on another professor. And these are both people who are like, I don't know what you're thinking about in terms of lifelong career, but you should make it this. Um, and that was, uh, you know, I mean, keep in mind, I didn't go to college like everybody else. I had been, you know, disowned by my father, temporarily disowned for my by my mother for a couple of those years that I was there because on account of the her collapsing marriage to my stepfather, you know, so it was a lot of isolation, <laughs> not, sure. des- not desolation, isolation. So, um, yeah. it meant, it actually sort of in a weird way meant something to me that Bill Rivers was like, you, you need to do this. It's not like he said, I'm going to introduce you to people. I wasn't asking for a hand or a hand. Uh, he was just like, I don't know what you're thinking, but if you're not thinking this, you're crazy. So boom, that's how I ended mm-hmm. up going into editorial. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. The, uh, as evidenced by uh, the picture of you on the back of the SSD cover and the power compilation, <laughs> yeah. which it's uh, like <laughs> every time, like w- once I, that I became aware of that, it's like every time I look at that, I'm just like, that's so funny. But the, um, you know, punk brought punk and hardcore, broadly speaking, like as you started to, you know, become immersed in it, you know, it was obviously very, you know, white 
just it, the whole crowd looked exactly the same. And then here you are, well, obviously you're taking up your own space from that side of things. Um, it, was it one of those things like you, I presume there were elements of you being like, oh yeah, I'm definitely the only person in the room that looks like this, um, but I don't care. Or did you encounter some of that pushback that obviously existed at that particular time of people being like, I don't know about this guy. Like the, you know, no. he's, yeah, no, that's awesome. n- not, not, not even, not even, not even a little bit, you know, I mean, maybe there was a, there's a great scene with Ira who later I became friends with. Um, I saw him at the Ramon show at great adventure, which is an amusement park in Jersey. And um, I think I said to him, you know, to indicate that I was part of the same tribe. I said, like, you know, I said, Gabba Gabba, hey. And he looked at me and goes, yeah, push, push in the bush. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit. Okay. <laughs> right. Was like, I love that song, push, push in the bush. You know, I just kind of laughed at the time. And later, later, when he was at a Whipping Boy show at like CB's or something, or we were hanging out, you know, uh, I said, hey, Ira, you know, you and I have met before. And he's like, really? When? And I told him the whole story. And he's like, apologized he's like hey man you back then we got so much this was like 79 because we would get so much shit from normal people and, and it's like yeah i know i wasn't wearing any punk rock finery i was just you know actually i spent the majority of my high school dressed like travis bickle from taxi driver right <laughs> not not <laughs> accident not accidentally either quite on purpose you know so right right and, and, no that's well that, that that's great and i think it's one of those things where, you know, that's why people, so many people found a home within the context of that, you know, early to mid eighties. I, f- I feel, I feel, you know, given, you know, the presence of swastikas on Sid Vicious and so on, and, you know, reading later reports by some of the other black guys in the scene, like Ivan Julian and so on. And even uh, my friend Pete, who lived two blocks from me in Flatbush, whose father used to sing for the coasters, who was a punk rock guy, the black punk rock guy too. Once he was like really pissed off about something, he said, oh, these people, you know, and he probably overheard somebody hurling some, ra- casually hurling some racial invective or whatever. And I, it, it, I, I kind of was shocked that it never had happened to me and or it had never dawned on me that this was an issue um, because I didn't come for, I was already tremendously alienated anyway so i didn't come for community you know and then when i finally found a community in other words when punk rock morphed into hardcore um i was you know again i was an outsider nobody knew that i was a new yorker they just say oh this is the guy from california so they were on their better behavior with me but I, i've never had that problem anyway and it could have been i mean you you know i was a competitive bodybuilder in high school so it could have been I mean, I was in the foreword of the book. Uh, Harley wrote something and he said, and I never made this calculation. He said, you know, Eugene stuck out because he was so physically fit, yeah. <laughs> right? Like he didn't say black. He just said physically fit. And I go, I go, yeah, I guess when, you know, you got guys staggering around high on the lauded, uh, you know, a person who shows up who seems physically fit and had muscles might be uh, an anomaly, you know, that superseded whatever race he was. So I yeah. mean, I didn't see, I didn't see anybody who was as physically fit as I was. So I guess it just, it just didn't factor in for me that I, maybe I should have, but I was never afraid that somebody was going to beat me up. You know, that never yeah. happened. Yeah, no, that's incredible. And that uh, attention to, you know, the physicality, like you've, I mean, clearly you wrote a book about it. It's like, and you said you were a competitive bodybuilder. How, like, 
how did you get into that? Because I mean, were you playing sports and then you kind of transitioned into that or what was the, no, intro? I mean, after my father got divorced, my, my mother got divorced, he had a, an apartment up in the Bronx. And so we were doing some kind of custody thing. So I'd go up and hang out with him and, uh, he was a pretty competitive, he was a, had been a phenomenal athlete himself, but it was a pretty competitive competitive type dad and my stepfather was also super competitive as well so i remember he had weights in the place and he was like always kind of goading me to lift them and i was like yeah okay someday someday uh-huh. i'll be able it was really divine we had one conversation after i turned 19 and he came out to see me and i said what do you want to do he goes i don't know whatever you do i go okay well right now i'm going to the gym so why don't you come with me and it was really incredibly satisfying where I put 315 pounds in the bar. I said, hey, I need you to spot me. He's like, I can't spot you on this. And I just look at him and laugh. I go, just help me get it off the rack. So he gets, you know, he kind of like scared because it's 315 pounds. And I put my hands, not like a normal bench press to the ends. I put it in the center of the bar because I'm doing close grip bench press. which is like nobody does this with 315 pounds and I'm looking at him as I bang out eight reps and then then I said help me guide it back in with you after I finish and he's like it was really he goes well well, I can't do that and I go of course you can't (laughs) and we take off the weight so he could just do the bar it's like you I am the animal you created so I don't I always want, you know, the backs of comic books and I was big in the comic books. They always had bodybuilders. And I remember the other kids like, ew, look at this nasty. It looks like he's got a heart on his arm. And I always found it super attractive, which, of course, caused my mom to for years to be uh, concerned about my sexual orientation. Because <laughs> if you remember, you know, that that was like a shorthand for either that you were somehow crazy and or gay. I mean, up until like the 80s, like if you wanted to show the character had, you know, uh, 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 sexual proclivities that were not standard, all you did in the background, and there are bunches of movies where you see this was to put a picture of a bodybuilder. right there wasn't like jim fix came out with a book on running and they kind of revolutionized things for people like whoa whoa, whoa, wait a minute you you can run for fun you know um totally that's a concept yeah yeah right and arnold of course changed things for i mean his father too turns out his father really disliked him uh initially because he thought that he was gay you know because of all the Mm -hmm. bodybuilding thing but he really changed things around when in the 70s he came out and said weightlifting to me is like sex and getting a pump is like coming and people didn't know shit about weightlifting, but that sold it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Right. They're like, wait a minute, this, this physical thing with, you know, a bunch of sweaty dudes is more than this. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah." Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I started lifting weights in 71, um, and, uh, and then got more serious about it when I got to be about 14 and, and it wasn't lost on me what it was good for, you know, I mean, I, I clearly made a connection between, you, you know, between, uh, muscles and, uh, the fact that they provided this great carapace against the world that would desire to hurt me. Right, right. No, I love <laughs> that's, uh, 
and that idea, like the competitive nature, because I think a lot of people look at, you know, the pursuit of the individual sports, whatever it's golf, tennis or whatever. And like, uh, they understand generically that there's competition, but like it is, you know, it is cutthroat when you get into those, you know, elite levels. And I'm sure that you experienced some version of that. Well, I don't know. I mean, in high school, it was teenage, you know, teenage New York right. gym association. So, and I was hardcore, I was har- a hardcore Hardcore purist in that regard. Like I was taking crazy, like pituitary gland and adrenal gland, like shit that the FDA clearly didn't sanction. Um, But I I didn't start using steroids until I was maybe 30. And I competed straight up until my last competition. I must have been 26, 27. So um, uh, it it wasn't so the work itself was intense. But I was working out at, at this place called the Olympia in Ridgewood, which was uh, started by this guy, Al Fives and Andy Bustinto, who started the New York Gym Association. And they were they had some you know top flight bodybuilders coming through there. So I saw what, what had to go in and, you know, to 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 get this, the job done. And it stood in my good stead. You know, a couple I hurt my back in college. And so I didn't really lift heavily. Um, maybe my third and fourth year of college it stopped. And uh, last summer after uh, graduating, I said, uh, this sucks. <laughs> I need to start lifting again. And it was it was like a clockwork orange where he talks about the real sad, weepy portion of our tale. Because uh, I remember a guy who I didn't like very much. I was in the gym and I... Um, I was spotting his roommate and he looked at me and thought that I was not up to the task. He said, no, no, Eugene, I'll spot him. And I was like, oh, oh, the humiliation. Did he? And I go, you know, there's nothing to do. There's nothing to do. There's no, I can't say I used to, I was that guy. No, the only way to do it is to work your way back. So it was great when I ended up finally, I mean, I at my heaviest, I was probably about 265 and, you know, doing things like close grip benching 315 and, and putting, you know, deadlift records on the wall and still into the music. But yeah, um, but that was another discipline. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I stopped by, I stopped competing in bodybuilding just because I got, I did the California naturals and got blown out of the water by guys who I had come to the conclusion were not at all natural. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not I, clearly, you know, I'm in my head in my late twenties. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a pro bodybuilder. So I need to move on here. And anyway, I was more interested in actually fighting. So that's right. something. Like right. That, that dovetailed into the other thing. Yeah. Right. The, um, you know, much of your time in regards to playing in bands, like, you know, whipping boy and obviously Oxbow, like, you know, you've toured a lot and mm-hmm. you, you know, uh, Touring obviously means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but you know, especially with the DIY touring circuit, like that's a whole different ballgame. Did mm. you like touring like when you first started to do it? I presume your relationship has evolved with it, or has it been pretty consistent? Um, I liked it. Um okay. I did it enough. I I liked it, but I realized something about it. I, I realized how people had romanticized it. Um it was it was it it's it was like taking LSD <laughs> in in a lot of regards. Like most people who before they take LSD, they have this kind of maybe romantic attachment to it, even if it's a dangerous attachment to it. Like oh no, you're gonna jump off of a building, you're gonna go crazy. Um, and then inevitably, if you take it, there's that point at which after you've consumed it, you go ah maybe I shouldn't have taken it. <laughs> and then of course it's like the when the roller coaster crests and the, and the ride starts, and you're like. 
here I am for 20 hours. Good luck with this, you know. So everybody wants to go on tour, but I quickly kind of uh, I gleaned that this was going to be one of the harder things that any band, any collection of creative people are going to have to do. So anytime people in bands would say, oh, man, I want to do like you, go on tour, I go, it's going to destroy your band. In the same way that people who would come to me and ask me to be a trips doctor, like, oh, man, I want you to help take, give me some LSD. I go, nah, I don't think you can handle it. Yeah, no, I really don't think you should. I don't, I'm advised. I told, I told my, my stepfather that he was wanting for me to be his trips doctor. And I was like, you can't, no. And he was like, why? And I go, because your soul is not clean. And he goes, well, you're getting religious on me. I go, I'm not talking about religion. I mean, all the stuff that you keep from thinking about is going to flood out when you take this stuff. And I don't want to be there when it happens. So oh, you, I think you're, this is just a life experience that you're either going to have to pursue on your own or do it without me. Um, and I think I've said versions of that to people in bands who think, especially people overseas who want to tour America. And I was like, America will destroy you. Do not do it. You have to be a very strong operating unit for it to be worthwhile and to get anything out of it. But for me, it was great because I had no, what was I going to do with my summer? You know, I had no, I had no place to go. School, school kicks you out. Um, I was, you know, again, disowned by both parents. (laughs) I didn't, I I wasn't going to pay for an apartment for the summer and living in the van that was not moving in a parking lot seemed to make no sense to me. So, uh, going on the road was the smartest thing I could have done. Our friends at evilgreed.net want me to let you know that they are an incredible solution if you are a band and or record label to work with them. You know, say you're touring Europe or whatever the case may be, you're doing stuff over there. They're a great partner. But you, the consumer, you can win by shopping on evilgreed.net and using this promo code 100 words. They have so many rad label stores, whether it's like Sergeant House, Triple B Records. Uh, they got, uh, what else they got? They, I'm just trying to operate off of memory, but they also work with incredible bands like, you know, Deaf Heaven, Isis, Burning Witch, Pain of Truth. Like they run the gamut from anything that is, I would deem as heavy and or artistic. That is what they do. And uh, they don't welcome every single label or band on board. They have a very specific point of view and they are incredibly supportive of bands. And in turn, You can order merch from all of these stores, have it shipped to you. They're based in Berlin, Germany, but do not let that stop you from ordering from them here in the United States. The shipping rages, the shipping rates are very advantageous for us. And uh, you'll just win when you go to evilgreed.net and shop to your heart's content and then use the promo code 100 words. Trust me in saying that, you know, we're interviewing Eugene from Oxbow right now. They are absolutely in this wheelhouse of what Evil Greed does. So evilgreed.net, 100 words is the promo code, 10% off. And now on with the show. On that idea of the, you know, the fact, not like you would have classified this as such, but, you know, clearly there are business principles that are attached to, you know, know, getting paid $100 for a show or whatever. Mm -hmm. Did you, I guess, enjoy that aspect of it in regards to like, oh, I like being able to put the pieces together for us to, you know, do the thing I want to, or was that something that you really kind of, uh, you know, push those responsibilities to either other people or, you know, you begrudgingly. No, accepted it? no, I did the, I did the business for a long time. 
because okay. I had a very specific idea of how I wanted it to be done. There's a great, there's a great documentary on hardcore uh, in Midwest hardcore that I talk about in, in the memoir. It, Cause, and it's just, they just put it out like three months ago and somebody said, Oh, Eugene, have you seen this? And it's Ian Mackay complaining about me. Now Ian and I were friends. It's not like, you know, one day I'm at my dorm room and, uh, and he shows up. He's like, what are you doing here? It's like, hey, let's hang out. <laughs> it's like, you know, you do, that's the last person you expect to walk into your room, you know, to knock on the doors. He had, so we were friendly, but at one point they interview him about this and he's t- thinking about the show. And he says, yeah, Whipping Boy was so excited to do the show. They said they would do it for free. But then afterward, you know, Eugene hit me up for $100, which I thought was kind of fucked. And I just, it made me laugh and laugh and laugh. And it's like, hey, you know what? If there's nobody there, um, I say, it's cool. That's free. Uh, you know, whatever. We're just happy to play. But if it's sold out, bro, you're going to give me some of that fucking money. <laughs> so, so you know, it, you know, people are wondering, you know, oh, what's Eugene going to say? Is he going to deny? I go, fuck no. Of course I extorted money out of him. What would you do? <laughs> you know, right. uh, I mean, uh, $100, that's a couple of tanks of gas back then. So, um, yeah. So no, I did the business for a long time until I fired myself. At one point, I realized how thankless it was, and it was making me hate the music and the art to do the business. And I said, for some people, business is an art, uh, but for me, it's a necessary adjunct to what it is we're doing, and it's making me hate what we're doing. So that's when we, that didn't happen until really Oxbow, and it became more of a collective endeavor at this point. Like, we got a tour coming up. You know, the bass player ha- is handling all, he's good with numbers. He's handling the books. Uh, you know, he's handling the tickets. All I got to do is show up and be a singer. So it's perfect. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's, it is. I mean, it's funny too, as this usually happens with most bands for whatever reason, it's like, oh yeah, the singer, like they can handle the business stuff or whatever. And it's like, it, it, sometimes that's not the best solution. <laughs> it's like, why no, does that No, yeah. for, for a lot of reasons too, because toward the end, I mean, uh, I mean, I don't need to get into too many details, but at one sure. point, some guy owed, owed us some money and I showed up at his place with a gas can and he's like, he's like, you know, fuck you. I'm not. And I just poured the gas over all over the entry. I go, there are two ways this can go now. I'm assuming you don't have another exit there. I'm going to burn you out. I need that fucking money. And this is, and he's like, he gave me the money. Um, and, uh, I was going to push it and, and charge him for the gas that I spilled all over from, you know, cause I had a gas can spilled sure. all over, but I, I, I figured, you know, and he said something interesting to me at the time. He goes, you know, I can't do business with people who do business like you. And I go doing business with people like you is not business at all. It's robbery. So good. We, we, we are, we are in finally in agreement. And I go, you know what? I don't need to be getting this exercised over this. I just, I would rather spend my time doing other things. And, or if I'm going to extort money out of people, it's got to be more than a hundred dollars here right. or $175 there, you know? So. so totally. Yeah. It's like, I, I'm nickel diming this person for something that it's like, dude, you know, th- I, yeah. We yeah. need at least 10 grand for this. this yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even back then, this wasn't a huge sum of money. So, uh, but whatever. You know, I mean, I, I you know, <laughs> yeah. I know yeah. guys who would kill you for less. So it's, that's yeah. true. That's yeah. true. It's a sliding scale, I guess, for how well, it's a, you know, they start to use words that scare people like principle. It's the pr- where, in actual <laughs> fact, what they're saying is it's not the money at all. 
but I'm not going to be chumped out by you. And if I have to kill you again, it's about being embarrassed versus you know being killed. Yep. So, so yeah, absolutely. The uh, something I've always admired about uh, your writing as well is the, and I know this kind of sounds like real basic, the idea of the attention to detail, um, because you know people can be very specific about their personal experiences, and mm. then sometimes it is so specific that it's you know it kind of all removes you from whatever it is that you're obviously yeah. being taken on a journey. And so, you know, do you have like that good of a memory? Do you just document a lot of things? Because it seems like you not only enjoy obviously telling stories, but then you do have this detail that is specific, but doesn't remove you from the, the, whatever it is, your turn, whatever point you're trying to get across. No, I, I mean, I've got a, I've got a pretty good, I've pretty, pretty good. I've got a pretty good memory for the dramatic. Um, okay. and, but I, I'll tell you a story recently that it, it shook me to my core and a woman wrote me and it's a woman I know from the hardcore days. And she is now some like currency trader or some governmental attache in Hong Kong, like some really hot shit job. And I was like, Oh, really nice to talk to you, Becca. Long time. Let's see, Becca. And she goes, do you remember the last time that we saw each other? <laughs> and you right away, instinctively, you know that this is not going to be a good conversation. Right. Like, you know, and I was like, eh, no, she goes, well, uh, I came to see you on campus. You gave me a big hug. You picked me up. You carried me across campus to where you lived. Um, you threw me on your bed and said, I'll be right back. I, I go, I don't remember any of that. She goes, huh, I guess not. I go, but now tonally, did something bad happen after that? She goes, yeah. I go, what? She goes, you never came back. <laughs> I, uh, and man, oh man, for the life of me, you know, I didn't want to, I said, well, I don't expect that you would have, uh, I, I don't expect that you would have forgotten something like that. Um, and I really wish I could have remembered something like that. But in this instance, I'm drawing a complete and total blank. She goes, I knew nobody else at Stanford. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I'm not mixing up stories. Um, I go, I don't, I, I remember distinctly complaining most of my time at Stanford about how hard it was to get laid. I can't believe I did that. Right. <laughs> it's like the, I mean, the human mind is obviously a very interesting place and the things that you have maybe such a vivid memory of. And then you're like, oh, that wasn't anything of what the actual yeah. reality was. It's crazy. I, you know, I, and even now as I'm recounting the story, I'm like, I'm just not sure. I'm just, right. none of that sounds, whereas on the other hand, a guy, a friend of mine says to me, he goes, uh, do you remember what you told me when I showed you my poetry? And I was like, oh God, this is not going to be another good story. And I said, no. He said, you told me to never write poetry again. <laughs> and I go, no, 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 I didn't say that. Because that that actually did not set, sound like me. And I, uh, he goes, no, no, you, you very distinctly said, you said, you should work on longer form stuff first and don't bother with poetry. I go, that sounds like me. That right. sounds that he goes, well, I understood it like to you to be saying I should never write poetry. I go, ah, I see. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like th that is not the intention of what I meant, but this, yeah. I right. Totally but 
throwing on the bed and then leaving and never coming back. There's not a lot of gray scale there. <laughs> so totally. I don't know. Don't know what happened. Don't know. What yeah. happened. She was perfectly attractive to me, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think she was under 18. That was the only thing that could have given me pause. But, you know, I don't. Right. It, it just leaving somebody alone in my room like that. And when I had, you know, firearms around the place, I just I don't know. But whatever. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, kind of on that same topic, the idea that, you know, people do associate you with, you know, fighting toughness like that sort of, you know, masculinity that exists within that uh, community overall. And it seems like it's one of those things where there is that dividing line between people who, you know, turn into, I mean, to a lesser degree, like that jockish behavior where it's just like, I just want to pick on people and, you know, fight people or whatever. And like, you have not adopted that personality of, you know, being like, oh, I can't wait to abuse people. <laughs> and, no, no. And, and how, I mean, I, how has it, you know, been for you to be able to obviously not cross over to that? Because, you know, it, it can be easy to just like buy into that, you know, alpha maleness of people that, you know, participate in what you do. So how have you kind of not become sucky as a human being from that side? Um, well, because of how I was up my upbringing, I mean, I okay. have... I have a huge, my family is very strange where the only men in the family were largely men who married in. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that means like every 50 years, there was a man like my uncle, Sammy, who was about 50 years older than me. And then my grandson, who was about 55 years younger than me. Um, and, but everybody else were men who married in. So it was, you're talking about lots of sisters, lots of cousins, lots of aunts, and, um, and I think that my identification, you know, as guys in jujitsu have uh, jokingly, or maybe sometimes not so jokingly described me that my orientation is, is very feminine, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and in actual fact, when I think of some of the scuffles I've gotten into, like fist fights or street fights, it's usually with men who I perceived that were I to be a woman, that they would just do the shit that they're trying to pull with me with a certain amount of impunity and they need to be stopped. You know, um, you know, of course, you, you know, as a, as a high schooler who was lifting weights and, you know, coming into his own vis-a-vis -vis muscles and martial arts, I discovered quickly that the fights that I ended up starting were the ones that pretty typically I lost, <laughs> you know? Sure. So it, it was really early on that they just, and that just, it was never my style anyway. I, I learned how to do this stuff so that I could argue right? Because you argue with people and they lose the arguments and they'll punch you in the mouth. Uh, whereas if they're afraid that you, to punch you in the mouth, then you can actually just keep arguing about stuff, whether it's comic books or I was never into sports really. So I was not arguing about sports, but mostly comic books or whatever else, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it never, it never appealed to me in that. It, I mean, I think people who do that do it for emotional reasons because they don't feel comfortable with their manhood. And I always felt pretty comfortable with my 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 manness you know right um, or, or clear eyed or, about that or yeah. or or, or uh, correctly uncomfortable about certain aspects of it so you know i've never like one guy a guy nate hall who's in a great band in down american south and i met him through the guys in neurosis and at one point he he he's had a blog or something and he was talking about meeting me 
And he goes, accidentally, when I first met Eugene, I think I, I both stepped on his foot and, and spilled a drink on him. I was so nervous. And then I was nervous about spilling a drink on him, but he was so cool about it that I was like, oh, this is not right. And I can't even think of the scenario in which I would have said, the fuck you spilling a drink on me for? I would not, like, never in this life ever would I do something like that, you know? So I just, the, the horrible aspects of masculinity, I find... Uh, affect me uh, deeply and appall me enough so that I've never, I've never, yeah, I, you know, I, I, I've, <laughs> I've not been a saint. That's why, you know, I didn't write the memoir for a long time because, sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and also, you know, there are lots of husbands out there who don't want me to be completely truthful about how I've spent some <laughs> of my time. So, so sure. you know, but um, but in terms of you know raw the exercise of raw and vulgar power, no, no, I can't do that. I, it's it's ugly. Yeah, absolutely. The um, on that idea of the creative pursuits, like we were talking about, uh, you know, originally, you definitely have done a lot of things, like we were talking about bands, you know, writing all that sort of stuff. Mm. How? Y- how do you kind of filter what, you know, kind of lands on your desk and what is interesting to you and, you know, taking whatever roles in media and, you know, like you said, doing movies and whatever, how do you kind of filter through those opportunities? Is it just like, well, if it's, if it's TV or film, it's the money, (laughs) right? I mean, I did the commercial, the Miller genuine draft commercial with Gus Van Sant. I love the fact that Gus Van Sant was a director, which people don't know he's out there directing TV commercials, but um, but the money was was extremely helpful. I mean, we're talking over one hundred and twenty thousand dollars for two days of work. So that was pretty great. Um, yep. And, uh, you know, Bill Cosby, who I never li- I liked him as a fan. Once I worked with him on the worst movie of 1987, Leonard Part Six, I did not like him uh, as a result of the three weeks we spent together. I thought he was a piece of shit. Um, and I, the movie was garbage as well, but because it was such a horrible movie, it actually made me about the same amount of money, even though I, I spent more time on the actual set making it. So that, that's an easy calculation to make it, again. I, I mean, lining up perfectly with me, not thinking that much about acting. Right. Right. Uh, but the other stuff that, you know, uh, like a VC guy, I talked to this guy, Ron Conway at one point, who was one of the early investors for Facebook. And I think I asked him the really, you know, naif question of like, okay, how are you making your decisions? You know, this is a certain amount of gambling. How are you? He goes, I don't bet on the technology. I don't know much about technology at all. He said, in actual fact, I, I, but I bet on the people. And so I was like, ah, all right. So I, I kind of, I kind of liked that. Like Jamie Stewart, uh, from Juju sought me out, um, and, you know, he didn't tell me until like years into our friendship that he, the circumstances under which we first met, you know, and it was inform like largely life changing for, for him in a very weird way. He was in, played trumpet in some band that had opened for us and a band that he, he was in with his father. And at the end of that show, two, his two things happened. His father, who played in the show with him said to him when are you going to get serious about music i guess versus fucking around like you were tonight with this stupid band called ibopa um i think that was his implication and then he had never seen a band like oxbow before who i mean we're very serious about what we do so uh this he he, that's he quit ibopa and uh which is i think stood for the indestructible beat of palo alto 
really terrible name. And then yeah. I he, st- he started doing uh, Juju. And then he K Records gave him a bunch of money to do this thing called Chocolate Tea and Wine, where he interviews people as they consume chocolate tea and wine. And he said, I'd like to interview you, so come on up. And that, and then he told me the story on the show. I was like, ah, oh, that's cool. That's cool, you know? Yeah. Um, so, uh, and I, I just love him as a person. So, uh, you know, he, but there are plenty of people who I don't know. Um, and the, my proviso is I have to like the music. There's got to be a budget. And if there's no video, I'm not doing it. Um, and I only, I've only gotten burned twice. Um, and one case was this Italian band and they sent me the, the mix to listen to, let us know your thoughts in the mix. And I let them know my thoughts in the mix. And then they released it and didn't, didn't put any, any of my, you know, they just yeah. ignored my, my input. So I was like, you know, that's not, it's fucked. And then I met these lunatics uh, who said, listen, I want, I want this thing where you sound like a cross between Phil Anselmo and Axl Rose. <laughs> and I thought, well, that sounds pretty challenging, but you know, you know, it's still going to be Eugene. And I recorded this whole record for these guys and they kept pushing me to come hang out with them in Fresno, which is like a real arm pity place. And I said, yep. oh, I'm not going to do that. And I recorded eight songs for them, a whole record. Cause I really liked what I was doing and nothing, no, never heard from them again, sent the record in, never heard from them again. Never, the record never came out. And I go, okay, I need to put some guardrails up here. And cause that was one instance in which I wasn't, voting on the people it was just a concept it's you know how the it's fuck do you sound like anselmo and axel rose what an entertaining i'm gonna do my version of it based on but that they that's what they really wanted so yeah absolutely no i i i get like the when you have like this you know checklist in your brain of like okay if it hits these marks where it's like you know yeah it pays money or whatever then it's like yeah I'll, I'll try this and then you know you do get burned sometimes but then there are many times where it's like oh yeah this does end up you know at least creatively fulfilling me or financially fulfilling me yeah and i don't i don't have any problems saying no you know i mean if i don't if i don't you know i mean typically if i don't like something i just say yeah you know you don't need me you don't need me you yeah. know you guys are you guys are fine without me so which right. is is really true i mean just because i don't like it doesn't mean it's not good it just means i don't think i could i I think i don't think i could add something to that that's going to improve it so yeah yeah you don't need me also Um, something i've started to do like a couple people like that was so good we think you should do all the songs on the record and i got not that i'm not doing because i've seen that i had a friend in a band this polish guy's band and uh we kind of got into it we were having so much fun and so i did vocals on their whole record and then the reviews came out and the reviews were pretty much yep just makes me miss oxbow (laughs) and and i was like "Ah, that's kind of shitty you know you spent a lot of time on your record it shouldn't be that and so yeah no more no more full records unless it's another project of mine that i have total control over like boonwell yeah right exactly um the uh, two last things I want to hit on was the uh, idea of, you know, writing a memoir, like the, clearly there's all that attention to detail. You're, you know, spanning your entire life and hitting on the stories that you want to focus on. Um, but it, it seems to me, I mean, I, I've only read a portion of it, but you're very clear eyed about your approach that in basically all your writing, including this memoir, in my opinion, that you're like, this is not for everybody. Like, you know, yeah. this is, and that's fine, but it is for someone. You just have to find them. Yeah. And 
writing a memoir, like that's even more, you know, attached to you as a person because it is your life. You know, did you have to approach tackling this form in a different way? Or is it basically just kind of like, oh yeah, this is a, you know, just a different version of fight, not saying you're rehashing the same stories, but like, do you have to approach it differently? Yeah, it took me a long time to get comfortable with it. And it, you know, Adam Parfi had been asking me for years and I, and I kept, was that line from in that NWA song? Don't quote me, boy, because I ain't said shit. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, right. I like, I don't have a story. And he's like insisting in more what was in my head was, you know, I didn't want to have to be uh, truthful about my, my sexual doings. And, and, you know, and then finally Parfi died and Christina Ward picked up the, the mantle. And so, and she's look, I'm coming to San Francisco and I'm taking you out to dinner. We're going to talk about this. And I was like, all right, okay. And so I, I met, we met in North beach and she took me out and she goes, nobody cares about your sex life. I was like, ah, what? So yeah, she's like, okay, if you, and the book can't be, you know, we're not, it's not this is not Proust, you know? Um, so why don't you just do from birth to the creation of Oxbow? How's that? And I go, ah, that's cool because that is, I mean, I always mark Oxbow as probably the beginning of when I lost my mind, um, you know, kind of comedically in a comfortably comedic way, but largely it was sort of really true. Um, and I go, and there was a lot of stuff that happened. There was a lot of stuff that happened before. So I'm writing for an audience of one in this instance. Like I wrote it for, um, well, maybe for posterity in a general sense, but I wrote it for Christina, you know, she yeah. seemed to think it had value. I'm not convinced necessarily, but I wrote it and I enjoyed it. And it reminded me a lot of writing a long, slow screw when I was, I, I, I laughed my ass off through large portions of writing it, you know? Um, and then, you know, there were a couple of, of kind of decision points where I have to write, am I going to be truthful here? Or am I going to hurt somebody's feelings? And, and then in each instant, or no, I guess, am I going to be not truthful here or am I going to choose to be truthful and hurt somebody's feelings? And I think almost in every instance I chose to hurt somebody's feelings. So, <laughs> so I was okay when the pub day got pushed back a few weeks because it's like, uh, I don't have to deal with angry phone calls or, or I guess emails would be more appropriate in this day. Nobody's calling me on the phone really anymore. So, Right, right. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's appropriate. But it's not mean spirited. I mean, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm giving the Shooting facts. Straight. So, yeah, you know. exactly. Right. The um, facts from where you sit. So that's yep. totally, totally yep. reasonable. Yep. You're, um, you know, because you have traveled in a lot of the, you know, media landscape, but then also like, you know, Silicon Valley and like you've, you've interacted with a lot of people that, you know, I personally define as civilians where it's like, they don't have any of the, you know, weirdo experiences that people like you and I do in small sweaty mm -hmm. rooms and what, mm -hmm. whatnot. But is it one of those things like, you know, do people turn around and be like, Oh, are you in that band? Like, you know, do you, do you get recognized within those, you know, civilian ecosystems or are they, um, you know, completely unaware of obviously the stuff that you have done previously? Well, you know, pre-internet, it was easy to have that kind of Clark Kent deal where nobody had any idea of what the shit I, what are you doing this weekend? I'm gardening which was true. I like to garden, but yep. it's not what I was doing that weekend. But with the internet, of course, with not too much scratching, it's really easy to find out what I do. And I remember the year, I think I was a uh, associate editor at Corporate Computing Magazine and uh, the weekly newspaper did a big a page size feature on Oxbow and somebody from work came. They, not only two people came in, one person came in and was like, oh shit, 
and I denied it was me, even though there was a photograph of me in the article wearing the same thing I was wearing as I was denying it. <laughs> but he understood the point, which is like, this is not going to get me a raise here. And I'm not talking about it. And it hit the same time that my first article for a national publication happened to hit. And that was an article for Hustler magazine. <laughs> and some guys like, oh, yo, I saw your piece at Hustler. I was like, hey, man, hey. This is not going to get me a raise. I don't know if you really want people here knowing that you read Hustler. So uh, he's, oh, okay. But at this point now, it's just, you know, I, it's what was weird is that my father, who is a professor, you know, though we've only had one conversation since I turned 20, his students would sometimes seek me out. Um, like, hey, I've had your father as a professor. I go, oh, yeah, okay, great. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, and then people like my oldest daughter, her boss is a huge Whipping Boy fan, and it just was complete happenstance that this came up in conversation. So every now and and then I was at a restaurant with some friends, and some guys say, Eugene. And I was like, yeah. And he was like, man, I heard your voice from across the room. And I, read, I go, who's that voice? It's his, it's his voice. And I was like, oh man, that's, and of course the, the guy was a DJ. So he spent much less time, much more time listening to me than he ever has seeing me. So he, he followed my voice over to our table. So it was kind of funny. No. Yeah, no, that well, yeah. and I, I'm sure it's fun for you to have those experiences where it's like you don't know what people's introduction point is to you, whether it's your writing, whether it's the fact that they're a fan of Oxbow or like you said, Whipping Boy. So it's probably fun to be like, I wonder how they know me from. <laughs> yeah, and I and I, and I usually ask right away, and I was like, hey, how how do we know each other? I'm not I'm not you know I'm no fucking media cheese ball trying to play it off like, oh hey buddy, I don't, yeah, you know, <laughs> totally. I mean if we yeah please tell me how we know each other. So it was weird, right? Like I went to <laughs> was that <laughs> I was at a a slave auction. <laughs> okay, right. So it's a it's at a sex club, right? And um. Uh, <laughs> I am being filleted by my date <laughs> and somebody taps me on the shoulder, right? Which is not really what you expect. And I turn around and I was like, Oh, Hey, and it turns out it was like a guy who I knew from some other like secret society thing that I was in, you know? And I'm like, wow. He goes, Eugene, what are you doing here? And I go, Man, that should be pretty obvious. <laughs> you know, totally. that should be really obvious. So, and so I start kind of giving him a brief lecture about the nature of secret societies. And he was like, no, 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 I got it. I got it. And thankfully, I've never seen him again face to face. Amazing. Yeah. You're like, yeah. You, miss, you must have missed the memo coming in here, my friend. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Those are the last words you want to hear. Yeah. Hey, Yuji, what are you doing here? It's like, ah, ah, no, 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 no. So, see, this is the kind of stuff I left out of this version of the memoir. <laughs> that's, that's good. Yeah. You got to leave stuff for falling, too. Yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. That was that. And what a sweetheart he is, right? I had no reason to be like intimidated or scared. And it was funny because many moons ago, well, actually not that long ago, I was working at uh, iHeartRadio and we had a partnership with a uh, media company that will not be named because, uh, you know, they ended up committing fraud and all this other stuff. But it was just a, you know, call that I was joining amongst many other people. And then Eugene came on and I was like, you're Eugene from Oxbow. <laughs> and he was like, yeah. And so it was just really funny. But 
He's a great dude. And like I said, please pre-order his book on Feral House called A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight Into Murderer's Row. Go do that at feralhouse.com right now. So big shout out to his publicist, Dan, for hooking this up. I do appreciate that. Next week is a really, really good episode with Gina Gleason who is from the band Baroness, and she joined probably about seven or eight years ago. I've loved Baroness forever, and they have a new record that's coming out, and or that just came out. And uh, yeah, I was excited to have this chat because her trajectory is really interesting, where it's like, you know, she goes from playing in like Cirque du Soleil to a metal band. <laughs> and it's just, it's wild, because, you know, that's that's not a common trajectory. Usually people kind of, you know, play in a million bands, and then maybe one thing kind of cuts through and then they're able to, you know, put out records and make an impact. But, uh, you know, Gina has, has done it in a completely different way and it's been, it was awesome to hear her journey. So that's what we got next week. Until then, please be safe, everybody. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Trust me in saying that no matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all of the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.